please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we're so grateful you're here. We're going through the, uh, the book of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel this year. And we're in 2 Samuel 22 as we see this, this beautiful uh, psalm that, that David writes. And hopefully we, our hearts will be encouraged as we, we look at this uh, this morning. As you turn there, uh, first, uh, before we, we go on, I just want to invite you also to, to come back uh, next Christmas Eve. Uh, we're going to be having our normal Lord's Day worship service uh, during this, this time. It's been mentioned no Sunday school next week, but we will be having our normal Lord's Day service here at 1030. And then you can come back in the evening uh, for our evening uh, Christmas Eve service. Always a very special time to kind of get together as a family, a church family, and uh, rejoice in the Lord together. So I encourage you to come back. Always a really special evening uh, for that. And then also, as you kind of plan out your calendars for next year, uh, 2024 is already upon us. I want to encourage you to think about being a part of the Creation Conference. Uh, yesterday at the men's breakfast, uh, Jeff Felosio shared some things that will be happening with that. And it's just a, a neat thing to be a part of. It's January 20th and 21st. And so be Putting that on your calendars as we, we talk about God and his act of creation, his power, his authority, his care for us, and it should be a really special uh, conference that, that weekend. So if you're not part of our church, we'd love to have you come and be a part of that as well. Well, we're here in 2 Samuel chapter 22, and I'm going to read just kind of three portions of this Psalm of David, kind of highlighting the three parts of the Psalm that we'll be talking about this morning. We're going to see the reality of God's deliverance, the reason for God's deliverance, and the result of God's deliverance as we look at this psalm. And so if you're able to this morning, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. First, I'll, I'll look at the first seven verses as we see the reality of God's deliverance. In fact, I'll start in verse 2. David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. And go down to verse 21. We, we see the reason for God's deliverance. In fact, at the end of verse 20, David says, He rescued me because he delighted me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And then we go down to verse 47. We see the result of God's deliverance. We see the result of worship. Here's what David says in verse 47. The Lord lives... And blessed be my rock 
And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. You may be seated. May God be glorified through the reading of his word and our hearts encouraged. And Heavenly Father, this morning we are in awe of you and your power, your salvation, the deliverance you bring. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would continue to be in awe of that power, that we would be uh, overwhelmed by it as we consider it in, in this text. And, and then as we look at your power, we would also be assured of your love, that we would look at this text and be assured of, of your delight in us if we are in your son, Jesus. And we, we pray even though uh, for those this morning who may not be in, in Jesus Christ, who've not placed their faith in him for eternal life, we pray that you would be working in their hearts and that they would receive the free gift of salvation this morning as they trust in you, as you work in their hearts. And then for all of us, we pray that we would apply the truths that we're looking at this morning in this, this psalm of your servant David, that we would take these, these words to heart and be encouraged by them as we think about your power, your salvation, your love. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite Christmas traditions in our house is to, to listen to Handel's Messiah. I love listening to that on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve and, and just uh, hearing just the, the beautiful music. I, I love the way in which Handel kind of takes, and his, really his, his assistant, to the, his collaborator, Charles Jennings, takes all these, these scriptures and, and traces this beautiful story of redemption. There, it consists of three parts, and, and each part talks about some aspect of of how the Old Testament points us to the salvation and the deliverance found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in, in the New Testament. And so, for example, in the first part, the first part's entitled Promise, the Old Testament anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah. And, and we have passages in that first part, like Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. A nation shall come to your light, and, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And it's this, this beautiful arrangement. They do such a, a beautiful job of taking Scripture and, and showing how all of, of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And it's, it's just a wonderful thing to do at Christmas and, and meditate on this Christmas season. would encourage you to do so. 2 Samuel 22 is not in Handel's Messiah, but it could have been, certainly could have been, because as we look at 2 Samuel 22, we see some of these same themes. We see this story of God's deliverance, and we see that the promise of a, a coming deliverer from the offspring of David. We see here in this chapter the proclamation of God's coming Messiah the salvation that God is going to work through his covenant king. It's vital 
for us to know and meditate on the truths that David is telling us here. You know, sometimes people will separate theology and life. They'll say, you know what, I, I don't want to get so caught up in, in doctrine and, and stuffy theology. I just want to live the Christian life as if those two things were, were separate from one another. And, and, and for sure, it's possible to get so caught up into to minutia and in doctrine and become arrogant and not let it affect our hearts, but that's certainly not what we're supposed to do. Doctrine, theology, knowledge about who God is should affect how we live and, and what we do. I had a, a friend in seminary who one time told me, he says, you know, I'm not here in seminary to just learn a lot of facts and make good grades. I just want to love Jesus. As if knowledge of God and, and, and life with God could be done apart from one another. And I, I think he changed his mind because he went on to become a seminary professor. So I'm obviously he understood how important it is to, to know God if you're going to love God. Now, what I want to suggest this morning is that some of us are struggling to live rightly because our, our knowledge about God is not right. Our lack of ability to live right is, is based upon our lack of ability to, to know right. We're not sure exactly how to think about God and his relationship with us. We don't grasp who we are in Christ and so we lack confidence that God really delights in us. We look at ourselves and think, at best, God tolerates us, and our lives reflect that reality. We feel defeated by sin. It discourages us, and as it discourages us, it continues to cause us to feel less confident in God's love for us. And in this psalm, here in 2 Samuel 22, David basks in his knowledge of God. And, he, and as, he, as he thinks about God and who God is, he erupts in praise as he talks about God as his deliverer. Now, we're not exactly sure when David wrote this psalm. This, this psalm here in 2 Samuel 22 is basically identical to Psalm 18. There's just a couple minor changes in Psalm 18, and perhaps those changes were made so that it could be sung in the Psalter or used in the Psalter. And so we're not exactly sure when David wrote 2 Samuel 22, but perhaps, perhaps based on what we see here him talking about, perhaps he began it early on in his life, and it was a psalm that he returned to over and over again, and, and at the end of his life, he kind of constructed it in its final version, because really what this psalm does is gives us a, a bird's eye view of his, his reign and God's deliverance of him throughout his reign as king. We see in this psalm his understanding of, of God's relationship to him. And now, as I look at this psalm, and as I read this psalm, there's something that strikes me more than anything else in it. And it's something that happens in the middle of the psalm. In the middle of the psalm, David expresses his confidence that God is on his side. In fact, he says that God saved him because he delighted in him. And, and he says that God saved him and delighted in him because of David's righteousness. And you think of, and you, and you, and you read that and you think, really, David? Righteousness. This, this is the same David as in David and Bathsheba, the, the adulterer, the, the murderer. He's the same David that in a couple of weeks we're going to see 
engages in this census that costs people their lives and this, this disobedience to God that, that he engages in at the, the last chapter of 2 Samuel. You think, okay, David, uh, when you say in verse 24, I was blameless before him, are, are you delusional? Uh, are you that arrogant? Are you that brash, David, to call yourself blameless before God? I mean, I, David, I've read the rest of 2 Samuel. I know what you did. How can David say such a, a confident thing? Here's the main idea that I want us to think about together this morning as we look at this psalm. I want to encourage us to live in the confidence that God delights in and saves the righteous. That God delights in and saves the righteous. I want us to live in that confidence. And, and what I want to suggest this morning is that if your theology was better, if my theology was better, we would have the same type of confidence that David has. And our lives would reflect that as we live a life of holiness. David here has that confidence. You say, Daniel, I am nervous when I hear you make that statement. And I say, well, hang with me, okay? Hang with me. Let's, let's look at some good, deep, rich theology about God. And at the end of this morning, hopefully we can say this as well. God delights in and saves the righteous, and I, that includes me. And there's three things we're going to look at. We're going to see the reality of God's deliverance, then the reason for God's deliverance, and the result of God's deliverance. And let's begin here by looking at the reality of God's deliverance in the first 20 verses. David is in awe of this, of this truth that God is a God who saves, and it causes him to erupt in praise. God is a, a saving, rescuing God. Now, look at the first four verses, and we see kind of the thesis of the psalm. David, it says, on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and I think he's talking there kind of again at the end of his reign, looking back on the totality of his life, not just one incidence of deliverance, but, but all the deliverances of God. And he says this, and again, I think these first four verses are the thesis of the psalm. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. I'm saved from my enemies. David says, look, this, this God is a, a saving God and he saves when I call on him. Now, uh, scholars note that if you look at some other ancient manuscripts from around the same time as David, you'll often find some, some similar statements that he makes here at the beginning or, the, or the, the narrator makes here at the beginning. There'll be some line at the very beginning of some statement. It'll say something like, a, this is, these are the words of King so-and-so when he was delivered from the hands of his enemies. And, and then what normally happens in these manuscripts is that the king will go on and say, okay, I had all these enemies and... Uh, Here's what I did and took care of business. I defeated this guy, and then I defeated this guy. And then, by the way, I really crushed this person. And that's what these, these uh, manuscripts will go on to talk about. The king talking about how he was delivered from his enemies by his own power. Obviously, that's not what David is doing with this psalm. He's saying, here's what happened when I was delivered from my enemies. Here's what God did. And notice here, 
not just the, the thesis of the psalm, but he goes on and he talks about the desperate situation that he was in. Verse 5, the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. You see there's this, this parallelism, kind of these four statements that all tell us the same idea. David's goose was cooked, right? He was in a lot of trouble. Sure, there are some this morning, it's, it's no great feat of prophecy on my part to suggest this morning that, that some of you may feel the same way as David. Something that started out as a minor annoyance in your life has become a, an existential crisis. There's a health situation or a family situation or a spiritual condition or some sort of rustling in your soul and, and, and you are in this desperate crisis and maybe some of you are in a crisis that no one else in this room is even aware of, and yet it consumes your thinking. You, along with David, can say, the, the waves of death are encompassing me. The, the torrents of destruction are assailing me. The cords of Sheol entangle me. The snares of death confronted me. Maybe it's a physical death. Maybe it's a spiritual death. Maybe it's emotional death. But you can say with David, yes, I, I am in this time of despair. And what does David do in this desperate situation he cries out to God, verse 7, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. And not only does he call upon God, he calls upon a God who hears. In his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. He's not some remote God that is unaware of, of our situation. But in your distress this morning, God is a God who's near who hears, who is aware. If God were a God who could merely hear, that would not be that beneficial to us. But the psalm goes on. He's a mighty God who's powerful. You see here as we go on through verses 8 through 20. He's angry at sin and wickedness in verses 8 and 9. He, he is, he's, he's, it says here that he's, uh, he's, he's angry in verse 8 as he thinks about the sin. Smoke goes up from his nostrils in verse 9. And then he comes down in verses 10 through 14, and he comes down with power. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of wind. He made darkness around him as canopy, thick clouds, a, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. God is a God who's powerful. We, we see here David invoking imagery from Exodus. Remember Exodus 19, the people arrive at Sinai, and they get a glimpse at the power of God. It says on the morning of the third day, this is Exodus 19, verse 9, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought out the people from the camp to meet God, and they, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh, the Lord, had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. Is there any doubt that this God can save? He's powerful. 
There are a lot of powerful things in the world, right? There are powerful people. Maybe there's a, a powerful person in your life who causes you some annoyance or some difficulty. There have been powerful people throughout history. Genghis Khan was, was pretty powerful. There's an emperor, Emperor Ashoka. He once ruled over nearly half the world's population from the Indian subcontinent. He was pretty powerful. Nothing compared to God. Psalm 95.3, the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The universe is pretty big and, and powerful, right? Yesterday uh, at the men's breakfast, Jeff was talking about how many stars there were in the universe, and he made up some imaginary number that I don't even understand what it is, and uh, 10 to like 24th power. There's a lot of stars in the universe. The universe is a big, I mean, just our solar system is, is too big for me to be able to understand. It takes eight minutes from the light to get from the sun to the earth, and we're pretty close to the sun, and I just can't comprehend how, how big the vastness of the universe is. And what does the psalmist say? Psalm 147, verse 4, God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is, is beyond measure. God is, is powerful over the universe. He's, time, time is powerful. There's no monarch that has ever been able to outlast time. There's no, no imp, empire that has ever failed to bow its knee before the Lord and before time. But God is more powerful than time. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is an everlasting God. No, no beginning, no end, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint, he doesn't grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. We could go on and on and on, but Psalm 145, verse three, expresses it well. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. God is powerful. And he deals with his enemies. Again, we look at these verses. He sends out arrows. He scatters them. He routed them. Again, there's imagery here from Exodus. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord of Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He rescues his people. The Lord was my support verse 19. And then look at verse 20. It says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. And then this very intriguing line, because he delighted in me. We'll, we'll come back to that. But, but first, let's, let's just talk about power. Do you lack confidence that God has the, the power to save you? that God has the power to deliver you in whatever you find yourself this morning. One of the great indicators that we lack confidence in God and his power is worry. I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my grandkids. I'm worried about my my retirement, I'm, I'm worried about this, and I'm worried about that, and I'm worried about tomorrow, and I'm worried about the day after that. And don't even get me started about 2024. I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. I, I get that, I understand that. 
was talking with a young man who's thinking about ministry and, and he was sharing some of his fears about about future ministry plans he had and what if this doesn't work out and what if that doesn't work out. I said, look, I understand that I felt that in ministry too. And when we were planting Bethany Community Church, we said, well, what if the timing doesn't work out? What if Five Points doesn't want us? And what if this happens? What if everybody leaves one Sunday while I'm preaching? What if that happens? It only happened once, praise God. But here's the reality. That's what we, we talked about with this, this young man. Look, my, my ministry isn't mine. It's God's. My life isn't mine. It's God's. And, and do I believe that God is powerful enough to do whatever he wants in my life? Absolutely. Do I believe that God can deliver me from whatever circumstance I find myself in that I don't want to be? Absolutely. Which means one of two things. If God can deliver me from a circumstance I'm in, either God doesn't love me and is, is excited about seeing me in this thing, or he loves me and this is exactly where he desires me to be. I want to whet your appetite a little bit for Philippians. We're going to start studying that in January. Paul has this absolute confidence in God's power to provide in Philippians. He's in prison. He might die. He might get released. He's kind of talking about what might happen. He says this, and notice here the confidence of one who knows that God is powerful. He says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, It's my eager expectation, hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You're confident. You're secure. That's a sign that your trust is in the Lord. You say, okay, Daniel, I'll concede the point, God is powerful. But I don't know if he likes me. I, I, I cannot say, as David says here, he delights in me. So what am I to do then? Yeah, God could save you, but he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't really, he doesn't really love you, you might struggle with. He doesn't delight in me. Well, listen to these, these verses. These verses are the center of the psalm, and I think that causes some consternation, but, but listen to what, listen to what we, 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 we can understand from these. Again, go back to the end of verse 20. He rescued me because he delighted me. And then he says in verse 21, oh, and by the way, that word delight means to, to desire something as well. It refers to, to, to the thing that you desire. So the wicked delights in or desires wicked things. The righteous delights in or desires righteous things. And, and David is claiming here that God, who is perfectly righteous, desires or delights in him. And you think, okay, maybe David, but, but me? Here's what he says in verse 21. He says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. And then he says it another way, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And so that, that word according to means kind of like a repayment for 
reward means something I've, I've, I've done to deserve something. And then verse 22 says, I've, I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not wickedly departed from my God. More specifically, again, describing his conduct. I've, I kept his ways. I didn't depart from them, didn't turn aside. And then he says in verse 24, or verse 23, all, all the rules were before me. I didn't look, turn aside from the statutes. Verse 24, I was blameless before him and kept myself from guilt. And then 25 kind of goes back and repeats the same idea as verse 21. I've been rewarded according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, my cleanness in his sight. You say, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're there in 2 Samuel 22, and you go, hold on a second. Let me, did I miss? Nope, nope, that did happen. I'm seeing the story of David and Bathsheba in, in chapter 11. Nathan, Nathan has to rebuke him in chapter 12. How, how do we get from chapter 11 to this, this brash statement here in 2 Samuel 22? How can this adulterous murderer Talk about his clean hands. There's a couple options. Some, some say, well, you know what? David really turned it around and you know, this works. He, he, he did the, the right things. And so now because he's doing the right things, God will reward him. I say, no, I don't, that doesn't jive, does it? Some say, well, maybe, maybe he had faith. And then once he had faith, he, he, he keeps the covenant. And so he's not talking about being, eh, not I mean perfect, just like really, really good. No, that's, that's not what he's saying here. He's, he's talking about enough righteousness to be rewarded for. Here's what I think David is saying. I think David is describing where he is positionally before the Lord based upon the Lord's redeeming work. He stands before God with all his sins forgiven, with God's righteousness imputed to him. We'll come back and I'll, I'll talk about that word in just a minute. God's righteousness imputed to him. And when God looks at David, and when David looks at himself based upon what God has told him, from a big picture perspective, all that can be seen is the absolute perfection of the coming covenant king, the Messiah. That word imputed is a big word. Here's what it means. It means that Adam's sin has been imputed to us because he's our, our head. But then God imputes or credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. So our sin is imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. All of us like being credited for the good work of someone else, right? Whitney comes down and she sees the dishes done and she looks at me and she says, oh, Daniel, thanks so much for doing the dishes. And what I don't say is, oh, actually, Noah and Ellie did the dishes. What I say is, don't even mention it. I love you, right? <laughs> you know? Or imagine you and I each decide to buy a house. And right now the average cost of a, a price in our area is a little over $200,000. And so let's say we, we each take out a 30-year loan for $150,000. And you, being the responsible citizen that you are, the, the, the financial uh, stalwart of our community that you are, you take out that loan and then you make every payment right on time, every month for the next 30 years. You 
pay off that loan you, and you do all the other right things with your money, you, you invest in the right things and you, you give to the right places and you are just this, this uh, paragon of virtue when it comes to your finances. And at the end of 30 years, you've, you've done all of these things right. I, on the other hand, don't make a single payment. I... Uh, spend all my money on books and enjoy it, and I live this, this life over the next 30 years, and, and uh, I've made no good financial decisions. And at the end of, the, of 30 years, the bank makes a mistake. And all of your good decisions are credited to my account, and all of my bad decisions are credited to your account. That's imputation. Except with Jesus, it's not a banking error. It's an exact picture of what he did for us intentionally. There's no accident. Every wrong thing that I've done is, 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 is credited to him, and, and he takes the, the full penalty for all of the mistakes that I've made. And I think all of us kind of understand that. But what we sometimes don't think about is, and this is so important for us to understand, to live the Christian life rightly. Every right thing that Jesus has done as he lived this perfect life is now credited to my account like I had done those things. That's imputation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So all the, the bad things that I have done, he takes the penalty for, and now all the, the good things that Jesus Christ has done in perfect obedience to God are credited to my account, and I stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus through faith. Which brings us to David. And, and by the way, Alistair Begg, if you, if you don't listen to Alistair Begg, you should be listening to Alistair Begg. Great thoughts here as, as he goes through 2 Samuel 22, kind of help me handle some of these tensions. Remember in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan confronts David, and he tells him, you are the man, but not like, you're the man, like, you're the man, like, you're the bad man, right? And then he says in verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. That's what the prophet of God tells David, your sin has been dealt with. And here's the shocking part. David believes him. David believes that when God says his sin has been forgiven. He would write this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Yet wash me thoroughly. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says in verse 7 of Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And God did that. And David believes it. And so we can say these things in 2 Samuel 22. He believes what God has said. And so I guess the question for you and me is do we? Do we believe that God has truly cleansed us from our sin? God makes this promise to David because of the coming covenant king who will keep the law perfectly. God speaks words not of harsh commendation to his people, but words of comfort. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Again, he's saying this based upon this future coming Messiah. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In the wilderness, a voice cries, prepare the way the Lord makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God brings words of comfort. He doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't say, ah, forget about it. Humans will be humans. He says, no, this sin will be dealt with. But it will be dealt with in a way that only I can deal with it. Completely, fully, utterly, forever done away with. So God speaks not words of harsh condemnation to his people, but words of comfort. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, he's able to save his people to the utmost. And so you and I also can describe ourselves as David does. And we can describe ourselves not as we are apart from Christ, but as we are in Christ, which brings me to this this question, are you in Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Allowing, by faith, having him pay the penalty for your sins, and by faith receiving the free gift of eternal life and his righteousness. There's no work we can do. There's no thing we can do to, to merit eternal life. It's simply receiving the free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have confidence in our deliverance because we're absolutely confident in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to the last thing, the result of God's deliverance in verses 26 through 52. Now, why does all of this matter? I want to suggest to you that this doctrine of, of imputation, of, of union with Christ and receiving his righteousness, this, this doctrine is crucial to living rightly. Over and over again in Scripture, we see it's essential to know who we are so that we can do the right things. And look at the rest of the chapter. First of all, we see this outworking of faith in verses 26 through 28. So, he talks about... There's, about 
what God has done. And, and then, he, then he talks about how they live in light of this. The merciful, God shows himself merciful. The blameless, you show yourself blameless. Verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to, to bring them down. And so there's this, this life that comes from this, this uh, position in, in this coming Messiah. And, and he talks about how, as you look at the rest of the verses, over and over you see it's, it's God who's enabling the deliverance from his enemies. The Lord is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless, verse 33. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war, verse 35. Over and over again, it's, it's God who is doing the work. And then his response is to, is to give these words of praise that we read earlier in verses 47 through the end. And, and again, I want you to notice that the, the very last part of the psalm points to the, to the offspring. He says he shows his steadfast to his anointed, to, off, to David and his offspring, that's the coming Messiah, forever. And that's where the fullness of David's promise is going to be realized and the, the fullness of the salvation we also have if we are in Christ. All this to say it's crucial to, to live the life of faith. It's crucial to know who we are in Christ and to believe it. Hannah and Parker, uh, I can't remember if it was my birthday or some similar occasion, they gave me a book. It, it was entitled, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales. It's about this neurologist who uh, has all these kind of interesting stories of patients and the things that they had. And he tells uh, one of the stories is a chapter entitled, The Man Who Fell Out of Bed. And this is by uh, Oliver Sacks, Dr. Oliver Sacks. And, and Dr. Sacks, when he's a med student, he, he, he's called to this patient's room. And uh, what had happened essentially was this, uh, that the patient had woken from his sleep here in the hospital to find in, in bed with him what he thought was a, a severed leg. And it, was, it had been New Year's Eve the night before, and he, and he thought that one of the, the nurses or residents had played a joke on him and put this leg in the bed with him. And he was, he was so freaked out by it, he, he took the leg and he threw it out of the bed. But what he didn't know, it was actually his leg. And so he went out of the bed with the leg. <laughs> Dr. Sachs comes into the room and the, the, the patient is, is hitting his leg. And Dr. Sachs says, I wouldn't do that. And he says, why not? He says, that's your leg. And he says, you're crazy, doctor. And Dr. Dr. Sachs tries to reason with him and finally says this. He says, I don't think you're well. Please allow us to, to return you to your bed. But, but I do have one question for you. If, if that's not your left leg, where is your left leg? And the, the patient became pale. He says, I don't know. It's disappeared. His thinking was wrong. And because his thinking was wrong, his actions were not going to help him. What needed to happen for his actions to be effective, his thinking needed to change. And so what I would suggest to you this morning is that some of you are living the Christian life defeated because your thinking about who you are in Christ is, is all messed up. David begins to, to live the, the life that God has called him to live rightly because he thinks about who he is not as he, as he feels, but as, as who he is in, in God, in Christ. In his book, Devoted to God, which, by the way, we're going to be uh, reading next semester in our 
systematic theology class. I encourage you to be a part of that. In his book, Devoted to, to God, Sinclair Ferguson argues that we need to understand what he calls gospel grammar. Listen to what he says. He says, when God urges us to be holy, when God urges us to be holy, he is not throwing us back on our own resources to pull us, ourselves up by our bootstrings and do better. Rather, he encourages us to swim into the sea of his love, to immerse our lives in his grace, and to live on the basis of the resources he has provided for us in Christ. To change the metaphor, Ferguson writes, growing in holiness and sanctification requires that we put down deep roots in the soil of the gospel. One way of describing this pattern of thinking is in grammatical terms. There's a kind of grammar we need to learn in order to live out our lives and to live out the gospel. This is gospel grammar. Gospel grammar employed in the New Testament and and coming to express in our lives always operates according to this basic rule. Divine indicatives, that's statements about what God has done, divine statements about what God has done, divine indicatives logically precede divine imperatives, what we need to do. So who we are in Scripture always comes before instructions about what we need to do. Who we are and what God has done and who we are in Christ always comes before the commandments. So for example, in the book of Romans, you take the first 11 chapters, do this sometime, take the first 11 chapters and count how many instructions are there. Ferguson writes, in 315 verses, you'll find only seven verses with an instruction. It's all about, here's who you are, here's here's who you were, here's what Christ has done. Know this, understand this, believe this. And then, after those first 11 chapters start coming the commandments, right? Obedience is crucial to the Christian life. This isn't just about positive thinking and the power of positive thinking. But it's about knowing who we are and our union with Christ, being convinced of these things. We are connected to a king. Verse 51 is is for us. He shows steadfast love to his anointed. And because we are in Christ, we are the ones to whom God shows steadfast love to. And now what's our challenge? Our challenge is to live like who we are, offspring of the king. Live in the confidence that God delights in you and he saves the righteous, which is you, if you are united with God in Christ through faith. That's you. Live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news we encountered. This this bold statement that David makes here. Father, help us to say the same thing by faith, that you save us because you delight in us. You save us because of our righteousness, not righteousness that is inherent to us, but righteousness we received through faith, by your grace, on the basis of the finished work of your son, Jesus. And now as we we contemplate who we are and the beauty of Christ and and the, the reality of the resurrected life in him, Lord, Let us see the fruit of that being lived out in our lives this Christmas and on into the new year as long as you give us life and breath and until you return. 
for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.